Good morning, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. For today's show, I gathered together three women fishermen for a conversation about what life is like as a woman in the fishing industry. Fishing as a profession has been central to the culture and economy of this region for generations, and women have always played a critical role. But usually, it's the men we focus on when we tell fishing stories, and admittedly, that has often been the case on our own show, too. So let's rectify that and hear from some women fishermen. Covering women's perspectives of fishing feels especially important because more and more women around the globe are getting into fishing, whether it's in the captain's seat, on the deck, or as sternmen. So today's show is partly about being a woman in a traditionally male-dominated industry, but it's also about working a job that captivates your passion and curiosity. It's about love and family, and it's about the differences in how lobster is managed and fished in Maine versus Canada. Because today's guests straddle the border, we have two women who fish off the coast of Maine and one who fishes off the coast of Prince Edward Island, Canada. I knew when these three women agreed to come on the show that they would have as many questions for each other as I do for them, because it's not every day that you get to talk to another woman who works on the water in another country during a pandemic. Now, I'm no fisherman, but I have spent thousands of hours at sea on the Atlantic. And so when I hosted this coastal conversation, I felt like I was in good company with these three women. I would happily go to sea with any one of them. So I'm thrilled to introduce you to my guests on today's coastal conversations. They are Holly Masterson from Southwest Harbor, Maine, Julia Caradoso from Bar Harbor, Maine, and Marlene Chapman from Murray Harbor, Prince Edward Island, Canada. A quick logistics note that our conversation was recorded on July 9th, 2020, so we won't be taking any calls today. Each of our guests will start by sharing a bit of their fishing story. Let's start with Holly from Southwest Harbor. I'm Holly Masterson and I fish out of Southwest Harbor. I'm starting my 17th season. Um, I go lobstering and we also go scalloping now um, but I've been ground fishing and also shrimping so I've kind of run the gamut of a little bit of everything around here um, and we fished everywhere from Gloucester and uh, we're focused around Mount Desert Island but we certainly go to Scooter and to Goolsboro and uh, Stonington and Penobscot Bay and everything in between. So, and out to the rock and the bank comfort and um, all the different fishing grounds for all the different different species, um, which is pretty unique and really kind of made a very diversified last couple decades of my life being on the water. Um, I've been on the wait list to get my lobster license now for a long time and just this April finally got it. So that was kind of a big, victory for me to sort of finally get that license that I've been just waiting and waiting and waiting for. So um, I start off with 300 tags and could start fishing those. But right now with everything going on with COVID and the price and the catch and not knowing where the whole shed of the you know season's going to go, um, I've sort of stepped back a little bit from being pretty aggressive this year. And I'm just going to double tag with my captain who I've been going fishing with for the last several, you know, the last couple decades. So um, we've got 600, a little over 600 traps in the water now. Um, and we're just going for it. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. I'm excited to talk to you about getting your license and, and like 
you're you are really diversified in terms of what yeah. you just go after that's super yeah. interesting. yeah last the last i'd say 15 years of just sort of like where is this going am i actually going to get my license before you know i'm in my 60s is this something that is you know even feasible as i get older and my daughter is 11 and as she gets older and she's you know interested in a whole bunch of things and i've got to you know have her tagging along with us on the boat which is great she's you know a good little crew she usually naps for she's pretty fierce first thing in the morning and then we'll definitely by about nine o'clock after breakfast and she's helped a little bit she'll take a nap so we have her set up pretty comfortably on the boat which is really fun to have her there and I'm not worried about her because I know right where she is and I'm not thinking okay who's picking her up and you know is she getting to point a to point b because I'm out on the water and that's always that's been really challenging I fished when I was pregnant with her until I was about five and a half months and then it was January and we finally just said, I think I need to cool it for the last half of my pregnancy. So she's grown up on the water. She's been there with us for everything. She's gone shrimping and she hasn't been ground fishing, but she's been shrimping and scalloping a ton with us. But waiting for my license has also given me the opportunity to do a lot of other things. Um, I've got my master gardener's license or not master gardener's license, but I have a master gardener course. I took that. Um, so I'm a volunteer with them. Um, I've got my real estate license. So I'm associate broker with LS Robinson real estate in Southwest Harbor. I have my hundred ton captain's license, which, you know, it was just sort of like, just seemed like a natural fit to do that. You know, if I ever, the goal for me was always to have four or 500 traps in the water and then do tours and kind of show people some sound and go out to maybe the duck islands and, you know, do a lobster bake on the boat and, you know, just trying to think outside the box of a few different things that might work um, and not be a hundred percent year round, always on the boat. You know, that's always been a challenge with having a young child and just the physical fatigue of it. Um, you know, I think we're all, and I'm sure Marlene and Julia will feel the same way that the physical demand and mental challenge sometimes is pretty intense and we've you build an endurance as a fisherman and being on the water it's like you have no choice you have no choice to go in you have to stick out long days and they happen repeatedly so we don't get a lot of breaks sometimes yeah yeah um let's go to to our other main based fisherman julia tell us a little bit about your fishing story you're at a really different place in your fishing career compared to holly um, tell us a little bit about how you got here and what you do. Um, well, I got here in a very complicated and long way because I actually was born and raised in Italy. Uh, and I moved to Maine about two and a half years ago now, almost three. Um, and pretty soon in my first year of being here, within a couple of months, I got the chance to go out on a lobster boat. <clears throat> it was meant to be part of a school project, um, but I enjoyed it so much. And the captain really appreciated the way I worked. Um, that it kind of turned into my job. Um, I was able to still fit it within my program of study. I was a master's student at College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine, which is where I live and fish. Um, and my thesis was about the lobster fishery here. Um, so being able to fish <clears throat> while studying the fishery was a huge opportunity for me. Um, and then it really became more of a passion uh, separate from my academic interests. Uh, so. After graduating, I decided to keep on fishing, and I'm in my second season of sterning on a lobster boat, but I've been scalloping and halibut fishing um, this last year, and hopefully it's going to keep going, and I'm going to get more chances to explore more fisheries. I would love to go ground fishing uh, like Holly does. Um, I'd love to go trip fishing for you know whatever opportunity I could get. I really want to experience more than just a day trip on a boat i want to see what it's like to be out at sea for you know days and nights um so we'll see where that takes me and uh marlene we're gonna cross the border and go to prince edward island super exciting to have someone from canada on the show tell us a little bit about your fishing story and a little bit later we'll dive into some of the differences between fishing in maine versus canada but how did you get into fishing 
Sure, Natalie, thanks uh, for inviting me to be here. It's very exciting. Um, I got into fishing actually because I fell in love with fishermen. <laughs> that is plain and simple. It's really how it happened. Um, and I only just finished my third season, so I'm still pretty new at it as well. But I, without going into my whole life story, I was um, at a phase of a career change as well. Um, I'd worked in public relations corporate kind of world for many years and I uh, started a graduate program at the uh, Masters of Arts in Island Studies at the University of PEI. Um, so I started that program and uh, that coincided with meeting my now husband Fred and I was going into that program I was already really interested in um, natural resource management, I guess. Um, but I did certainly end up using the opportunity to study the industry and, and be a part of it at the same time, which I agree was so cool. I just found like, I actually hit the academic literature before I found myself in the boat. And when I hit the academic literature, like I just, I devoured it. Like I just couldn't get enough. And I was reading and reading and reading. And then I was in the boat and I was reading and reading and reading. And that kind of has gone on uh, for a couple of years and I'm still in the thick of both those things. But, um, but I just, yeah, I do love the, the fishing experience. So we, I'm in Murray Harbor, which is um, very close to the ferry between Prince Edward Island and Nova Scotia. And we fish um, kind of right in between PEI and Nova Scotia uh, off of an island called Picto Island there. That's where um, the fishing grounds are that we fish out of. So it's so interesting, the diversity. There's similarities. Both Marlene and Julia have connected fishing with um, learning about fishing and being a graduate student and studying the industry. And Holly, you've been fishing for a while, um, but you've faced some challenges with getting your license. So um, it's, it's interesting to hear. I, I wanted to kind of lay the groundwork around sort of differences. Like I know that one of the primary differences between Prince Edward Island and Maine is that Maine, Mainers, and you guys correct me here, help me help set the record straight. So in Maine, fishermen have the opportunity to fish all year if they so choose, though most don't necessarily go in the winter, but more and more do. And then in Prince Edward Island, I think you have seasons, right? Marlene, tell us a little bit about how that works. Yeah, absolutely. So um, of course, the it's federally regulated here and there are um, what they call lobster fishing zones, right? So it's mapped out and each zone has a season. Now our season is May and June. So it's only nine weeks, 50 hauls, Fred likes to say. Um, <laughs> And then like our neighboring zone actually is uh, August through October. So th those are the two zones around PEI. But then once you move into Nova Scotia, you know, there's other zones again, and there is some winter fishing um, of Nova Scotia, but not here around PEI. Um, do you, is your license connected to the zone? Or can yes. you hold a license for more than one zone? You, you can, but you would be buying another license or a, yeah, securing a second license. Marlene, we obviously do a lot of comparisons to the Canadian fisheries and um, everything that kind of goes up there is, you know, we're always sort of just debating back and forth, um, you know, is one better, is one worse or whatever. Um, so when you just mentioned 50 hauls, I'm just curious how many traps, so when you haul, how many traps do you haul per haul? Do you haul? Yeah. That's what we were always kind of under the impression that your boats were huge and there were these big novies and every trap you you had a tag for went on the boat and you went and you set those right that first that first day that it was open and then you would just as soon as that last trap was set you just go back and start hauling over and over again until you know your time was sort of up so I've always been curious if that's really kind of how it works or maybe you could just sort of let us know more about that. Sure um, I mean of course I'm so curious about to see, and I am, one day I'm coming to see. <laughs> I go with you fishing, <laughs> put that out there. I go with somebody fishing anyway. Um, it's definitely on my to-do list in the near future. Um, so, it's, the, the, you know, there's a lot of truth in in what you've said there. So I'll just try to describe it. I First, I would say, I don't think we have huge boats. Like I haven't seen yours. I think ours is 46 feet long. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, so that's that, you know, and that's a normal um, size boat. When they get offshore Nova Scotia, um, Southwest Nova, we call it, um, they're larger boats there. So here we're talking about um, 272 traps. That's what we're licensed um, to be able to have. And we do, there, there is this with the short season, of course, that creates this very uh, rush um, mentality for everybody. And you go really hard because you only get that short period. So we, we tr people try to get all the traps in the water um, in one day, but you know, with all the variables that doesn't usually always work, might take two days. And then, yeah, people generally try to haul every trap um every day and that's six days a week so nobody fishes here on sundays and that's just a gentleman's agreement that's always been something that i've always been really curious about up there is how that works and we have two we have two boats we have what we call our summer boat which is um for more sort of our inside fishing and it's 35 feet long um and then we have another boat um which is our sort of our winter boat and our dragger which we go scalloping and ground fishing and shrimping on when it's open um, and available to us and that's 45 feet and that's a Dixon so that's was built actually in you know in Nova Scotia so that's um, and my dog's named Dixon we cool. you know I love that boat and it's definitely it's been part of the family now since 2006 was when that boat was built so it's had a lot of hours on it um, and we definitely you know we go we haul um, like in our season, which obviously we can go year round, um, but we've slacked back a lot these last few years as scalloping has gotten sort of more and more part of our routine. Um, so we, you know, with COVID and everything, we're certainly slacked a lot this spring, but we usually haul anywhere from like 270 to 350 a day. Um, depending on what we're hauling, if they're short warps or if they're, you know, triples and all that. Do we have a third man? Are we, if it's just me and my captain, you know, we obviously can't haul as much. We're getting a little older, we're a little slower. So, you know, we're starting our days a little bit later. You know, everything, we have kids with sports programs and stuff after school. So, you know, everything's just a little bit different rather than, you know, 15 years ago, we would haul. 300 plus a day and we were up early and it was just like go 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 and that was year rounds for a long time before we finally just really slowed down but you're welcome to come fish with us if i can go fishing with you that'd be so sure, cool yeah. julia can you share a little bit how much uh how many traps you guys have sure i go with an again an older captain uh so he's starting to slow down a little bit too we have last year we were fishing about 700 traps uh, this year we haven't got them all out yet. Right now we have about 250 traps out, maybe 300. Um, and we tend to haul, last year we tended to haul about 200 traps a day. This year we have a third crew, so hopefully we're going to haul a few more during the day. Um, we're one of the last boats to leave the harbor, but I've been on other boats with younger captains, so I've seen the difference. And it, it, it's still a long a long day and it's still a lot of physical work you know you still get home tired but um it's definitely a different rhythm from some other boats the other difference is that my captain doesn't want to fish in winter so we don't really go offshore we have we set a few traps beyond the three mile line uh later in the season before we take traps up but for the most part we focus in inshore waters and july august september are definitely the focus of the season once october and november come uh, we're starting to take traps up and not going as often because of the weather. Having seen other boats, I would call the boat I regularly work on kind of relaxed, but it was definitely a great environment to learn on. And I'm very grateful to have started on it. As an older captain, he has a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge of what happens on the water um, and how to, you know, he has all these little tricks and things that he's learned over the years and has a lot of patience. He's not as rushed as many other younger captains. So he didn't mind in the beginning having to maybe slow down even more than he would have normally to show me things, to teach me how to do things the best and most efficient way. And that then allowed me to feel comfortable going on faster, harder boats. You're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant.
On today's show, we're talking with three women who make their living as commercial fishermen. Julia Cardoso from Bar Harbor, Maine, who was just speaking, Holly Masterson from Southwest Harbor, and taking a jump across the border to Canada, Marlene Chapman from Murray Harbor on Prince Edward Island. Our conversation was recorded on July 9th, 2020, so we won't be taking any calls today. Most fishermen, including our three women, start their careers working on someone else's boat under a licensed fishing captain. Julia was just talking about the learning she has done alongside her captain, and I wanted to hear more from all three of our guests about their mentors and who in their fishing lives inspired them and helped them on their fishing journey. Here's Holly. So my captain, um, you know, he's a, been a mentor for me for almost 30 years now. Um, you know, he was in, involved with my mom when I was back in high school and, you know, in uh, junior high. So, you know, he was a father figure to me um, when I was a teenager and they had a fish market together. So here in Mansett, right in Southwest Harbor. So my first sort of introduction to fishing was certainly when I was about 12, 13. I mean, I grew up where I live, where I grew up in Southwest Harbor was literally right on the water. I would wake up, you know, my bedroom window would face the the shore and I would wake up to the wormers and the clamors, which is ironic because now I'm, you know, I'm involved with a clamor now. So, you know, our lives kind of revolve around the tide <laughs> and what the tide's doing. And, you know, that's sort of where I start, you know, I lived there when I was three years old and, um, you know, that was what I woke up to every day. It was it was magical. Um, and now we're fishing out of that. I'm fishing out of that same Harbor. I look at that house, you know, and I, we were steaming by every day and I see that and I have a lot of great, great memories on that shore. And, um, I think just looking for crabs and sea glass as a young child, just really got me really interested in the sea. So Dave, my captain, certainly when I was about 14, I started working, um, at the fish market, and that was just fun for me. I loved it. And when I turned 15, I got my worker's license and I would go down. He would be trip fishing. So he'd be out for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 days at a time. And when the boat would come into Dice Arts Marina, I would drive my little truck down there and I would clean the boat for him and his crew. And I would be left a grocery list and I would drive over to Bar Harbor and I'd go, you know, grocery shopping for them. And then I, you know, bring all this stuff back and pack it away for them for their next trip out. So it kind of relieved them, you know, I just got all their provisions and cleaned up a little bit. And I just couldn't believe that I would ever kind of resume, like take over for them, you know, as the years went on, I got the opportunity. He just asked me, you know, would you want to go haul for a little bit? His crew had hurt his back and that first day, I remember I was on the boat. I borrowed everything. I borrowed oil gear. I borrowed gloves. I borrowed everything. And at the time, I was dating a fisherman. So it was, you know, just seemed like a fun thing to try. Um, and I did, and I hated it. <laughs> I was really cold and tired. It was a very cold October day. And I just, you know, remember thinking like, I have no idea how many traps are left to haul. I have no, I have no idea how many we already have hauled, but it felt like a thousand. And, you know, he jokingly just said, okay, 30 more pair. And I went, oh, I, I'm not going to last. And then he looked back at me and just said, I'm kidding. We're heading in. And I just remember that relief, like, oh, thank God this day is over. And then we got to the dock and warmed up and everything. And then he gave me my paycheck and asked, you know, do you want to come back tomorrow? And I just said, hell yeah, I do. Cause that was more money than I had made in any other job I had ever had. That's just what hooked me, I think in that beginning. But then I really started to love it. I absolutely loved being on the boat. I loved organizing things. I love just kind of you know, I love the treasure of the hunt of what we were going after and, you know, learn more about everything, you know, all aspects of, you know, what kind of bottom to look for. And the weather has always sort of intrigued me. So it was always fun to, you know, to hear about the weather and all that. But I do have um, fisherman blood, you know, I have a great, great grandfather that was actually lost at sea at a Gloucester back in, I'd have to check the dates, but I believe it was like 1856. Um, it's several gr great grandparents ago. Um, and my father's family is from the Gloucester, Salem, Massachusetts area. So um, there's definitely a rich history there for me that I've only really experienced and gotten to know about in the last 15-ish years, kind of learning more about that and being in Gloucester and actually 
going out, you know, by the breakwater there in Gloucester. I've actually gone out of the same port now that my great, 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 great grandfather did and was lost at sea there. So that was, that was pretty incredible for me to experience that and go down there and do that on Stellwagen Bank and stuff. So that was cool. That's very cool. How about you, Marlene? Who are some of the, who are some of the people in your life who have sort of helped shape you in your fishing world? Well, primarily Fred, right? So I, um, I grew up in potato country and PEI um, was never around fishing. I mean, I was always love the ocean, drawn to the beach, um, spent a lot of time there. But yeah, no fishing in my family, all farmers. And um, I actually didn't even live in PEI for quite a long time. But um, when Fred and I, um, after I returned, I met Fred and we were in a relationship. And at that time, I was actually the executive director for the local Canadian Cancer Society. And I was doing my graduate studies and it was just too much. Like it was just too much. And um, the graduate studies and changing my career was the dream. And Fred just said to me, like the fishing's always there if you want it. And I asked a lot of questions, <laughs> not the right ones. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I asked a lot of questions and considered that and decided, um, so three years ago left that, uh, job like 20 years of working in offices and uh, got rubber boots which I was you know really excited about these great rubber boots and my oil gear and all that stuff got shopping and and then went out and it was so hard um, like physically the weather like I said May is really tough here it's still very cold and windy and rough seas um to be working in and uh and it's just yeah like what a shock to the system so that was my initial um uh, but there was no like i never thought of like i'm not going or i'm not going to do this like this was you know my livelihood for now um and at the same time like that it was physically hard it was such an amazing experience to be in nature all the time and like feel like I was working with nature right like with live beings and just being a part of something so much more tangible and authentic and grounded was um, really the hook for me and why it's it is a livelihood for me um, for me now and why I've stayed and so Fred's background is um, like generations of fishers and brothers that fish and cousins that fish and are still here you know in the local community and so i've i've moved now to fred's community in murray harbor and you know i can see the harbor from my house and surrounded by fishermen and boats and and that that whole industry and and way of life and uh, i just wouldn't trade it for anything at this point yeah so um, we're recording this show via Zoom, which for the benefit of our listeners means that I, you are only hearing these voices, but I get to see the faces. Um, and I love seeing your reactions to each other and how you guys clearly have things that you are finding in common. Like everybody nods when I heard the words of it's hard, um, but everybody also nods when Marlene, you were talking about sort of feeling like you were really connecting with the ocean and with nature. Um, it's just, it's, it's interesting to, to see those commonalities. Um, Julia, how about you? So how does a young woman from Italy wind up um, fishing? What, what's, who, who and what kind of inspired you? Well, I definitely did not come from a fishing family, definitely did not come from anywhere near the ocean. I grew up in one of the biggest cities in Italy, but I've always been really enamored with being outdoors, uh, with nature, with learning about nature and animals and plants and anything that wasn't built by humans, really. Um, so to make a long story short, I ended up studying um, geography and then from there became really interested in conservation. And at the same time, as I was exploring that, I uh, started scuba diving very regularly and I fell in love with the ocean. I realized that that's where I wanted to spend my life, whether it was on the water or underwater. Um, I didn't mind. I just wanted to be near the ocean. And the reason I became interested in fishing was that 
I wanted to work for in like a conservation framework. I wanted to protect nature and develop and help humans really develop a good and sustainable relationship with nature. But the more I just worked with nature or with animals, the more I realized that there was something missing and that to really get that sustainability and that preservation of the natural environment, you have to work with, with people, with humans. And in terms of the ocean environment, the first group that immediately came to me were fishermen because obviously there's such a like Marlene has mentioned which by the way I could have I couldn't have said it better myself but there's obviously such a strong relationship between a fisherman and and the ocean and the species that that they work with um so I wanted to explore that connection and see how um how it mattered in terms of conservation and sustainability so I came to Maine um with an interest in small-scale fisheries and like I said I got an, an opportunity to go out on a lobster boat um and fell in love with it pretty much, pretty much for the same reasons that Marlene mentioned. Um, fishing for me kind of brings everything I love and care about together, sometimes in ways that people who are not involved in fishing wouldn't expect or wouldn't necessarily understand. Um, but I remember the first day I was on that boat, it was kind of a similar experience to probably both of you. I started in November, so it was cold. It wasn't you know, it wasn't the bright sunny July days that we're having right now. It was, I think most people would have been a little put off by the experience, but I remember texting a friend of mine, be like, I have never felt more in the right place as I am right now, as I'm feeling right now on this lobster boat. Um, so it kind of started from there. And in terms of mentors and inspirations, um, my captain, once again, has definitely helped, helped me believe in myself, helped me believe that I could do it. Um, I didn't know that there were many women fishermen around um so I was really worried at first that I wouldn't have been able to not just do it but also be accepted by the wider community um and he kind of always brushed off my concerns and said it doesn't matter you're working you're you can do it you're doing it so I don't know what you're worrying about and then he started mentioning all these girls around the island that fished including Holly <laughs> so <laughs> at the risk of sounding like a fangirl Holly was one of my inspirations even though it took me a while to then meet her in person knowing that she existed and she not only went lobstering but she went scalloping and ground fishing and did all these things that on paper appear so hard and so you know unthinkable to do like going fishing in winter in Maine um, but knowing that she was doing it gave me a lot of it, it helped me believe in myself I I kind of knew I could do it because I'm a very stubborn person um, but it helped to know that there were other women out there that were doing exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and then I also fell in love with a fisherman uh, who has been extremely supportive <laughs> of, um, of me working um, as a fisherman. Um, he's pushed me to go on harder boats and kind of push my limits. And I think he believes in me more than I, more than I do. Um, he has never once doubted that I could do what he does, which to me is insane because he's been fishing since he was, I, I think, 15, 16. But, you know, knowing that someone like him with that amount of experience, if he thinks that I can do it, then why should I doubt myself? And I'm not saying that you need an external person or in particular a man to confirm that you can do these things, but it just helps me make me feel less out of place. Um, knowing that people who were very different from me and who knew I had a background that generally doesn't fit with the image of a fisherman that you tend to, you know, think of, um, knowing that they thought I could do it definitely um, cast away any doubts I might have had. The first time I met Julia, she showed up in my driveway to get some scallops. She was bringing scallops to some friends down in Midcoast, Maine, and I had, her captain had actually already reached out to me about her and told me how amazing she was and that I had to meet her and, you know, really connected us. And I remember when she left thinking, wow, that girl is going to definitely do something with her life really amazing and inspirational because, I, and I've thought this since I, I mean, that was like two plus years ago. It was like when you first moved here and I loved you. I just thought you were so sweet and so young and had this beautiful accent that I was just remember thinking like this one is really interested in my life and what we do here in Maine and it's so different than what she's you know what she just came from in Italy 
and I didn't know where she was from. At the, I knew where she was from, but I didn't realize that she was from like city life. And I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it because she seemed like a natural fit for the boats and for the lifestyle, you know, which obviously isn't normal. <laughs> you know, we're up at basically all hours of the day, depending on what we're doing. And she just was amazing. So Julia, oh, you're, you're going to make me cry. Oh, you were definitely, I, and I still feel this way about you. I just, from the minute I met her, just was like, that is a girl that, I mean, and I'm obviously a little bit older. <laughs> so I was thinking, you know, if I ever had a boat of my own, like that's who I want on my stern right there, because that girl is dedicated. She's a super hard worker and she understands this building, this endurance of, you know, you can't always say, hey, when are we going in? Or how many more traps are there to haul? It's like you basically have to just put your nose down and you're just getting through it. I mean, sometimes, yeah, we have beautiful days where we see lots of sea creatures and everything is inspiring. And, you know, the sun rising every day on the water is, I think, what's really kept me sane in my life and the ups and downs of you know, having a child and being a single mom for a long time and, you know, all these different things of like watching the sunrise is, wow, the sun rises no matter what. And I'm going to be there to greet it every morning that I can. And I definitely, Julia, you inspire me just as much as I maybe inspired you for sure. And Marlene, yes. love hearing the stories from other women that, you know, basically just kind of gave it a chance and fell in love with the ocean that's what we are. That's what we do. How common are the three of you? Do you, are you the only women that you see? Do you see other women? Let's maybe start it, with Marlene. What's the, what's the makeup of the, you know, male versus female and how, how is it to be a woman fisherman on Prince Edward Island? Yeah, I would say I'm not unusual around here at all. It's, um, the, this, you know, small scale fishery is still very much a family kind of business. And so there are an awful lot of uh, partners and children, <laughs> like, you know, good sized children um, that work, right? Like the families still make it work. Um, not in every case, but it's still very, very common. Now, something that I've been paying keen attention to, and, you know, it's become a bit of a inspiration for me is that there are a few female captains um, around now, like license holders um, that have their own fleets and are running the show. And I really appreciated listening to Julia because it reminded me, like, I, I went through a little phase where I was like, I'm going to do that. Like, I'm, I'm going to take over Fred's license. Like, this is what I'm going to do. Like, you know, this is my life. And um and I somehow talked myself out of that here recently. And I just realized that listening to Julia um, and that I, it was a good reminder that, you know, I can be inspired and it can be done and other women are doing it. And just because I'm a female doesn't mean I don't have it in me. Um, it just means I have to find my own way to do it, right? To make it work. So um, yeah, that's the situation. That last voice was Marlene Chapman, who fishes for lobster out of Murray Harbor on Prince Edward Island. You're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. This episode was recorded a couple weeks ago, so we're not taking any calls today. My three guests today are sharing their perspectives about life as women in the fishing industry in Maine and Prince Edward Island. In addition to Marlene from PEI, who you just heard, we're also talking with Julia Cardoso from Bar Harbor and Holly Masterson from Southwest Harbor. On our next and final segment today, we get further into the differences in the process for becoming a captain in Prince Edward Island versus Maine, which, as you'll see, are quite dramatic, and our guests are keenly interested in these different approaches to managing fishing licenses. How does one get a license on Prince Edward Island? How do you go about becoming, getting a license to be the captain of a lobster operation? You, um, you buy it off of the existing owner hmm. selling it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like there's no new licenses being issued by the government. There hasn't been for a really long time. Um, every once in 
I would say maybe two or three times in the last two decades, there has been a government buyback where they're taking licenses out of the water um, and have, they've really reduced the number of licenses as a con conservation effort, um, along with the traps. Um, that's been the trend. So if you want a license, you have to find somebody who's selling their fleet and you buy it. Uh, just curious, Marlene, how much do those licenses go for? So that varies on where the license is for, right? Like where it can fish. Um, but there has been a massive increase in, in the price of these things. And whenever you buy a license, generally you're, you're, you're buying the fleet. You're buying the boat, you're buying the traps and the license. Like it's a whole kit and caboodle kind of thing. And so they have gone from, I think in a decade from, like 150,000 to a million or a little more Canadian dollars. Yeah. Okay. And again, that's going to vary quite a bit depending on which fleet and, and where they have that license located. In comparison to the PEI system that Marlene just covered, Holly then started explaining the process for getting your captain's license in Maine. Her audio got a little garbled, but she started by saying that you cannot buy a license from another fisherman in Maine. Instead, she says, you have to go through an apprenticeship program that lasts that's two years and then you have to do your days at sea and you have to then be on this wait list, which I talked about earlier that I finally got mine after 13 years of waiting. And so the, who's holding the license and deciding when it becomes yours? Um, so the state, um, so each zone has uh, an exit ratio. So like right now we're in zone B around Mount Desert Islands, um, which goes over towards Sorrento and Blue Hill Bay. Um, that this area that we're in where Julia also fishes um, is considered zone B. And we're at an exit ratio right now of three to one. So for every three that exit, we get one new license is awarded off that list. Um, a student license is a little different, um, but as far as the apprenticeship program, which is what I went through and what Julia would go through if she if she was doing that, which are you? Are you doing the apprenticeship? Yeah, good, okay. Um, so we, but that's changed a lot over the years. I've been pretty vocal so, as much as I can be without being too much of a pain, but you know, there's two or three years where no licenses came off the list. Our zone council, which is basically a panel of fishermen, um, that decide those things. So, you know, some of them want more people, some of them don't. So depending on who's on that council, those decisions are made based on, on their choices. Um, and there was a period of time where it was five to one. So five licenses would have to be retired for every one new. Um, and then it was, there was a period of time where it was tags had to be retired. So there was about seven years where they made it really difficult and there was no movement off that list, which is why I kind of got stuck there for as long as I did. Um, but in the recent years, they have moved that, that ratio up a little bit thanks to you know, the commissioner, the zone council, um, just knowing that they had to do a little bit better job allowing those licenses to get off the list. So the license in the end doesn't cost you very much. It's just actually getting it. Uh, it's like, I think it's about $400 a year to maintain it. And then you have to buy your tags, which are 50 cents a piece and then, um, or $1.50 a piece. Um, so, you know, that adds up pretty quickly. Just for listeners. So tags are literally each trap that you have has to have a tag. Can, number. Is that correct? And not trap in the water without a tag. So the tags are everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, so back to the question of how unique you guys are you gals are, I should say, um, as women in the fishery. Julia, do you encounter other women um, in, in, in your sort of fishing circles? And um, I guess another question I wanna ask you all is, um, do, you, do you think that being a woman, like how has it either on the one hand, what are the qualities that you bring that you think are to your advantage or do you think that there's barriers that it's set up for you? Um, I think there's at least, two other women that fish in Bar Harbor as crew members. And there's a handful of student fishermen, like girl fishermen, um, that are building up their business. So they might be anywhere from 12 to, I think the oldest one probably is 18 at this point. Um, and that's so, how many fishermen in Bar Harbor, do you think? Uh, there's about 25 fishermen and maybe six or seven student fishermen. 
I'm not too sure about the student fishermen, but so we're obviously the minority, but I'm not unique. And you know, Holly fishes in Southwest Harbor. I know a few that fish out of Northeast, so or Alsford. So I never felt like an exception to the rule. And in terms of what we bring and what the obstacles are, I start from the obstacles. Um, I'm a pretty short and small person, and that sometimes can be an obstacle. Not because I can't lift what I have to lift or move what I have to move, uh, but simply because, for example, I can't stack traps as high as, you know, a six foot tall guy can. But I never, it, it never really stopped me from doing my job. I might be a little, you know, it might take us an extra boatload to get all the traps out because I can't physically put them on, but I don't think it makes me any less of a deckhand than a guy that is taller than I am. A real problem for me is that I can't find oil gear my size uh, for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really nice <laughs> to have kids gear is too small and the smallest size for women's gear is too big um but it's okay you adapt that's really i found that that's really important when you're out on the water you you know like holly said many times you can't go back so you have to work with what you have and you have to adapt um and you have to endure so i just walk around with my oil gear under my boots most of the day but in terms of what we can bring a lot of male listeners are probably not gonna appreciate what I'm about to say but I think there's an element of ego that goes into fishing that is not as developed in women or at least not as not as obvious um, maybe that's the right word um, from what I find most women that I met that fish are pretty humble and pretty curious so no matter how much experience they have they will ask questions if they want to learn something new they're not just going to pretend that they know what they're doing just to look good um, and I think women on, on average, obviously, are more precise, more accurate. Um, I find that we can keep track of everything that goes into fishing um, a little better than men. Um, they obviously have a lot of other, you know, it, it's a balance. It's not like they're a disaster and we're perfect. But um, <laughs> <laughs> in my personal experience, we, we're more meticulous. Um, and I've heard from many people that... We're not as aggressive um, so that, especially with lobsters, we handle them more delicately. We take better care of them, which actually benefits the business of a fisherman because you end up having a better product, you know, a higher quality product. And I don't know if this benefits us as, as fishermen on the job, but you probably noticed that all three of us talked about our personal connection with the ocean and our personal connection with the job and what that means for us. And, on, and generally women are more open to talk about these things than men are and I think it brings out a new dimension of what fishing is for people that are not involved in fishing you're less likely to hear these things from a, a, a man that fishes but they still go through their minds they still appreciate fish, fishing for pretty much the same reasons that we do from what I've been able to uh, to find out but but they don't talk about it as much so the fact that women do talk about it a little more I think paints a, a more complete picture of what a fisherman is and what fishing is about. I love your characterization of um, the women fishermen that you've encountered, that they're humble and curious. That really rings a nice note to me. Um, Holly, what do you think about this topic? Um, so I'd say a few years ago, it seemed like everywhere I looked, there was a woman on the back of a stern, stern boat or back of a lobster boat. And um, you know, that's really exciting to me. You know, I, I think that when I first started, there was a handful. I remember, um, this woman, Barb, who I love Barb and she's still on the water. She fishes with her husband. And at the time it was her. And, you know, there was a, maybe one or two others. Um, there was a really, at the time, a very young girl that was just starting out, had her student license. And now she has a much bigger boat and, you know, has her own crew now. And is certainly, you know, she's a year round fisherman now. So to see her is kind of like I've watched her over the years develop from a young teenager to where she is now, which she's in her late twenties and she has her own boat and everything. So that's been really cool to watch her. Um, but yeah, I feel like a few years ago I looked around and was just like, wow, there's a woman involved, you know, maybe not right there captaining the boat, but there's a woman close by or on the stern of the boat or, you know, buying lobsters or, you know, just arounds that kind of gave this really 
unique balance to the whole fishery and our harbor, I thought was really cool. Um, obviously, we're a huge tourism, you know, industry around here. So, you know, we'd get into the docks in the afternoons um, and there would just be tourists lined up, you know, wanting to take pictures and ask questions. And I felt like it was always really fun to connect with, you know, people from away and, you know, explain what I could about what I knew and, you know, how our day went. They'd want to know how many lobsters, you know, we'd come in, you know, there was a couple of years ago, you'd come in with 2000 pounds plus every day. And they're just like, couldn't believe that there would be that many lobsters in the ocean, let alone that you just caught them on that one particular day. So, you know, they'd want to get pictures. And as a woman, I always felt really, I, I like to do that. Like I like to connect with people. So I really enjoyed talking with anyone that wanted to hear about it. Um, I do see like what Julia was saying, like the aggressions and the egos of some of the younger guys or even some of the older captains that are not really, they're bitter, but they're maybe not bitter, but they're just used to things being the way they were 50 plus years ago. Um, so, you know, they're just, there's different dynamics of everybody, male, female. I feel like it's, it's something that we're all it's the same fishery, but it keeps changing. Politically, it changes. And, um, you know, the price is always a hot topic around the docks. Price of bait is always a hot topic. Um, but as far as seeing the women around, I feel like it's been, I feel like it goes through ebbs and flows of a lot of like, sometimes there's a lot of women involved and then sometimes you know they move boats or they move around and then we don't see them again for a few years but then they pop up on another boat and it's like oh hey there you are <laughs> so you know it's just kind of fun i've always i've pretty much stayed on the same boat my whole career so i i'm pretty consistent with what i do um but what julie was saying too about how we're a little more meticulous that's funny because I started off very meticulous and I, everything had to be perfect and cleaned and I wouldn't even leave the boat until it was a certain way. And now it's much more like, I got to do stuff. I'm like, I throw the buoys, I throw everything and I'm running up the dock because I got to meet my daughter or I got some, I have somewhere else I need to be. So it's funny that how my lifestyle has changed so much from what I was when I was a younger fisherman and in my early twenties and, you know, not, I didn't have the responsibilities like I do now. So it's just, it's changed a lot for me personally. I just wanted to add, like, it, it's interesting to talk about the differences we notice maybe in gender or personalities or whatever approach. And I can, I've observed a number of the things shared already. The other one I'd be curious if um, Holly and Julia find too, is that women tend to be more safety oriented. Um, and, uh, I think I've experienced that, um, I think in my own boat and observed it maybe with, uh, how other females prioritize things that they're doing in their boats. And I wonder if you guys would see that too. Have you, um, just curious, Marlene, have you taken any, um, like to do the apprentice program, I had to do a Coast Guard training session. Um, have you done anything like that where we actually had to get in our survival suits and kind of you know go around the harbor a little bit in those suits so we know what that felt like and what that experience would be like if you actually did have to put on your suit I mean clearly it's not the same if you were actually under distress and your vessel is going down and you know you've got to really be clear-headed in what you're doing to survive um, in a moment like that but I'm just curious if that's something that you have done up where you are you know, shockingly here, um, there's zero training required um, to start working in a boat or to get a license. That being said, um, you know, it's a very dangerous occupation and there certainly are a lot of safety measures, you know, in place and safety gear and, and that kind of thing. But um, in terms of learning about how to be safe, that would have come from, the, the, we call it skipper here, from the skipper um or from just the other crew and that, like being curious and asking questions when you say that you've observed that women are safer or more safety oriented do you mean that they well we i guess um make sure that the boat is set up to be safe but then we still take risks or that we're safety oriented in the sense that we take less risks I no 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 uh, yeah i wouldn't say less i wouldn't say more cautious um more conscious 
perhaps okay. would be how I would put it. So making sure that there's not stuff where you're going to be walking and that you have clear access to things and things that are sharp or dangerous are not sticking out or laying around just tiny little things or that, you know, the safety gear, you know, equipment is up to date and it's there and it's accessible at all times. And yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I completely agree. We've had, um, when we go ground fishing, we would have to take an observer with us. Um, so it was sort of, I, after taking the, the Coast Guard training that I had to take, um, you basically become this like a drill instructor. So you're, you know, technically you're the one that when someone enters your vessel, you need to point out, okay, here's the EPIRB, here's the life raft, here's how you use that, here's the survival suits, here's the flares, um, if you, you know, have a first aid kit or any of those things. And I, um, we take an observer even lobstering now, maybe once, twice a year, and I always orient them with the boat, and I always point out all those things. And the last observer we took last fall thanked me and said, you are the only person that's ever done that. I thought that was interesting when he said that. He just said, of all the boats I've been on, I've never had anybody point that out to me. And I just thought that was really interesting that you wouldn't, you know, like why? I mean, we're, we're all in the same boat, right? So if something happens, then I want you to be just as informed as I am, because what if it's me that is in distress and you don't know what's going on or, you know, there's a fire or there's, you know, someone's tangled up in the line or, you know, something like that happens. I want everybody to know what's going on. I do feel that that might be the mother in me, or I'm not really sure, but I certainly, you know, I want to, I want to know someone's got my back just as much as I have theirs. Um, so I think I'm going to ask Julia my last question. We could talk about so much more. You just mentioned China. We could talk about tariffs. We could talk about right whales. We could talk about so much more. So we'll just have to do it again. Um, but I want to ask Julia as the youngest, I'm guessing the youngest, uh, member of the group and the person who <laughs> maybe got into it the most recently, what would you say to other women, whether they're younger or more senior, um, who want to get into the fishery? Just go for it. Um, and I know that I talked a lot about figures, especially male figures that supported me and encouraged me, but at the risk of sounding kind of arrogant, the thing that pushed me the most was doing things and seeing that I could do them. The day that the first day that I went winter fishing, winter fishing on an offshore lobster boat, I don't know if this is appropriate for the radio, but I did not pee for 12 hours. I stood up and never stopped for 12 hours. <laughs> That had never happened before in my life. And when I got off that boat, I was like, I don't need anyone to tell me if I can do things or not. I've just done something that I know big, you know, strong, young guys that would just not make it. They would not make it through the day. And I did. And it doesn't matter if the old timer at the dock makes fun of me because I'm a tiny girl. And, you know, it's a joke and I know they don't mean it, but they still joke about the fact that I'm a young girl working on a lobster boat. It doesn't matter because I know that I can do it because I've done it. So I would say if you want to try it, go for it. And, you know, don't, don't let the jokes and the comments, which are not even that common, but don't let any of that bring you down or, you know, discourage you. I'm a five-year, five, well, not five-year-old. <laughs> I'm a... I'm a 5'1 girl who grew up in a big city. The first time I started working on a boat was, I was 19. Um, so not many people would have given me a chance. And for that, I'm very grateful to my captain. But I think a lot of it came from myself. If you have that desire to go out there and be fishing, I think that's enough for you to do it and for you to believe in yourself. So I would love to eventually have my own license and my own boat and have a woman on board with me and go offshore fishing in winter and show them how it's done. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, thank you all so much. I have so many more questions, but I think we need to leave it at this. Um, I really appreciate your time and your energy and the inspiration that you are going to provide for lots of the folks who listen to the show. Um, lots to learn from all three of you. So I'm really grateful for your time and energy. 
And with that, we've come to the end of today's Coastal Conversations. I'm so grateful to my three guests, Holly Masterson from Southwest Harbor, Maine, Julia Caradoso from Bar Harbor, Maine, and Marlene Chapman from Murray Harbor, Prince Edward Island, Canada. Thank you so much for helping us understand some of the fisheries management differences between the U.S. and Canada. And above all, thank you for your willingness to share your perspectives as women involved in fishing. May your voices and stories inspire many a young and not so young woman to follow in your footsteps at sea. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. And we also encourage you to listen to our sister program, Talk of the Towns, with host Ron Beard from 4 to 5 on the second Wednesday of each month. The Coastal Conversations theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good weekend. <laughs>